Welcome to the Who's Your Mob podcast. This is my second attempt to put something together and I've been lucky enough to have a good friend of mine, Kimberly Moulton, put a hand up to have a bit of a yarn with me. And although she comes from more the visual art side of things, I thought it would be a good opportunity to get a bit of an insight into that world, especially as it seems to be a bit more prominent in the the artistic landscape, the Aboriginal visual art, uh, than you know, Aboriginal musical uh, expression. So it's nice to explore that, uh, suss out what parallels there might be, and also explore a little bit about the the Aboriginal art of the southeast, and in particular Victoria. I guess through her work as a curator and her work at Melbourne Museum, she has quite an in-depth insight into uh, traditional and contemporary Aboriginal art. So I hope you enjoy our little conversation and, yeah, I hope you get along and see some of Kimberly's work sometime soon. Anyway, here we go. Kimberly Moulton. I was thinking what could be good, because I'll be talking to a lot of Aboriginal people mm. and people can listen in from wherever. I think the first question I should ask is, who's your mob? <laughs> okay. Do you want me to say my name or? Uh, well, I might, I might have oh, back announced it, uh, okay. but uh, yeah. So my mob's uh, Yorta Yorta. Yep. Do you want me to Yeah, elaborate? well, like, so elaborate. So like, uh, you know, from the James surnames name. and, yeah. Um, yeah, like Grew going up. back to who, like who, who's famous in your mob and all that kind of biz. <laughs> Well, my mob's Yorta Yorta, and I'm from the James family and Cooper family. Um, and I grew up in Shepparton, but you know, my, a lot of my family were on the Cumbergunja Mission, Apachuka, Shepparton, uh, Marupna, that area. And I come from a pretty long line of um, teachers and activists and artists. And um, my uncle William Cooper was a very strong civil rights leader. My great-grandfather, Thomas Shadrach James, is a teacher and doctor on the mission. So, yeah, that's my lineage. Yeah, and I guess you're continuing on with your work for the museum, mm. of course, full-time, and then, but you're a curator and um, you're an activist of sorts, like through your work, and then do you still paint? Do you still create art? Um, I weave, actually, yeah. Weave, okay. So... Yeah, like I, I have my museum practice and work in, in our culture and with our collections at the museum. Um, but then I have my own sort of curatorial practice outside of work in the visual arts and have worked with different arts institutions. And I tread in both spaces and I see myself as just working within culture, not, not necessarily a museum curator or an art gallery curator, but both. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, in my own time, I, I weave and I make earrings. <laughs> oh, is that what you're wearing now? Yeah, I'm wearing them now. Oh, um, how cool. Yeah. That's, that's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. So I, I was taught to weave by a few aunts in, in Melmet, actually, over the past few years. And then what's really solidified it is going to Stradbroke Island. And I've got some really close friends that are traditional owners there and have been weaving, yeah, with them and their mum, Sonny, for quite a few years now. So... I love doing that, yeah. Is it the same weaving style or is there anything unique about the um, different parts of the country with the weaving? Yeah, I mean, it, it shifts across the country and certainly the Kwandamuka mob on Stradbroke Island have their own style. But what's very common um, across, and it, it began in the southeast, it was actually a Victorian style to begin with, was the coiling method. Mm -hmm. um, but that's spread across the country now and that's the method I use is just the coiling um, and I use raffia but to make baskets and, and I've made earrings out of lamandra as well, which is the, the native grass that, you know, we would traditionally weave baskets and different things out of, yeah. But you can find that, like, I'd go down to Mary Creek or down this series and the lamandra's growing all along the river or car parks in Melbourne, like, you can kind of pick it anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And traditionally, what was it used for? Weaving, like, would there be baskets or yeah. jewellery? Um... Um, I haven't seen or, or heard of jewelry um, woven jewelry in Victoria but certainly baskets um, and you know if we're talking pre-contact um, baskets and carrying 
vessels. Um, you know, there was weaving techniques for grass, for belts, um, for carrying weapons. There was weaving techniques for skirts that you might have an emu feather skirt with a woven part to it, or you might just use leather, kangaroo leather. But yeah, so weaving was, yeah, used, I suppose, mostly for baskets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what about the top end mob? Like, mm. is it a similar style and does it look the same as the patterns and stuff? yeah there's similar styles and and like this coiling method has gone up north now and it's an interesting story actually it was actually taken from Cumbergunja mission by Greta Matthews who was the daughter I think of the missionary Daniel Matthews she might have been the wife but anyway Daniel Matthews had Maloga mission which then sort of became Cumbergunja um, a few years later and uh, Greta Matthews had learnt this coiling method from the women at Cumra and um, had gone, I think, over to South Australia and then she went up to the Northern Territory and she taught, she sort of passed on this technique that yeah, she'd right. learnt from Victorian Aboriginal women um, sort of on her journey across Australia. And there was a workshop actually probably about 15 years ago maybe at Melbourne Museum where Northern Territory women came down and had a workshop with Victorian Aboriginal women and they shared back sort of that technique yeah, brilliant. again. Yeah, so I know that that has travelled, you know, in that way. Um, but, yeah, there's weaving techniques that differ across the country mm. and the, the materials used and the way that you treat those materials to be able to weave or make string, how you dye them, all of that. Yeah, it's very diverse. Yeah. Probably the most f- famous weavers that I'm familiar with are the jumpy mm. weavers of um, the central desert yeah so I don't know I, I guess their work it it seems quite artistic mm. and it has that sense of aboriginality about it but then I, I'm trying to work out whether that was actually a, a practice before white people got here or is, is this a new technique that yeah. they I mean, there was, yeah, certainly there was weaving before, you know, um, invasion. But I guess with these, um, particularly out in the, you know, um, central desert and across Australia, really, like the evolution of of cultural practice, of traditional practice, moving into this contemporary art space and then expanding on that and like getting really creative with, you know, the, the methods that you know and that you've learnt and that's been passed down for thousands of years. But then just moving it a bit forward or, or a bit different to to expand and and what the Chinapi desert weavers are doing are, you know they're telling stories about their their lives as women you know in mm. the communities that, that they're living um they're telling their creation stories they're they're making really quirky scenes of animals and you know there was one i saw at darwin art fair recently actually and they had um this little figure holding kangaroo tail um that they'd woven and, you know, see, there's all these narratives that are playing out in their art that is their everyday life that is still very much part of who they are. It's Aboriginal, it's Aboriginal art, but it's, you know, using purple wool and just extending, you know, that, that cultural practice, I suppose, in a way. And we have that in Victoria as well. Um, you know, we've got many weavers, like Annie Broadwin Razum is a beautiful, beautiful weaver. And she actually taught me many years ago um, at a workshop at Bunjalaka. Um, and she just had work recently in Akka, this, in the Sovereignty Exhibition. And she makes eel traps and more customary things. And also extends that and makes little camp dogs with wool. And she's evolving that practice as well. So, mm. yeah, there's both sides to it, I suppose. I know if it's coming through on this, uh, uh, I know it's probably not so loud. Uh, you, uh, just to give people perspective, we're sitting out in the backyard. I think it's probably still about 20, 25 or twenty six degrees, yeah. and it's like seven <laughs> o'clock, and uh, we're yeah out here like sipping on some wine, and mm. I guess the neighbours have uh, got the same kind of idea, but they've got a bit of a soundtrack to help them out. <laughs> Let's hope they play good music. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I guess like the weaving, it's, mm. uh, there are a lot of other cultures around the world that weave in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, what makes the weaving here a, a uniquely Aboriginal uh, art form or, or mm-hmm. craft? I suppose, you know, weaving, making baskets and that kind of thing is a global Indigenous practice. And... You know, the techniques here and obviously the materials here make it stand out 
as being uniquely Australian Aboriginal practice. I'm sure there's probably a lot of similarities with some of the techniques as well across the world, but I think the fact that this has been here for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years and we're still doing it, and we still have that knowledge within us, and it's a way of connecting back to our ancestors, but also taking it forward. And so me making earrings out of naturally dyed raffia that are bright pink and orange is that next step, I suppose, in still maintaining cultural practice, but just moving it forward in a different way. And, you know, there's lots of amazing weavers across the country. Lisey Carmichael is one. She's a Kwandamuka woman. She's a friend of mine. And um, she's actually living out in the desert at the moment in Alice Springs and working with Chinampi and, and different artists as well, but has a very strong practice in weaving and in making and both in fashion, but also in basketry and mats and lots of different things. And her and her mum and her sister Freya Carmichael, who's a, a curator up there as well, and Freya has a focus on fibre work from that area. They're all, you know, reviving and, and looking at that weaving practice up in Queensland. And there's lots of little pockets of that happening across the country. And yeah, there's been a huge revival of weaving for many years in Victoria. Yeah, right. Yeah. Something that I notice getting around to a lot of different events and mm. festivals, which are showing Aboriginal culture, but then also um, bringing about a participatory element for non-Aboriginal people coming to check it out and engage with Aboriginal culture. So weaving is you know, one of the things I see quite often where people can sit down with Aboriginal weavers and, and start learning techniques. Yeah. The sharing's quite open. Although it being you know this traditional practice, mm. there are lines to draw in mm. regards to cultural appropriation, appropriation and yeah. such. Yeah, I think so, definitely. Like... It's a very individual thing as well. If a maker, a weaver chooses to do workshops and share that practice, you know, with non-Indigenous people, it's completely their choice. But I think there's other kind of ways of thinking where a lot of our people don't know how to weave and haven't had the opportunity to have that because of our displacement and history of colonisation. So some people think, well, until we ourselves as a people know how to weave and maintain that practice should it be passed on to non-indigenous people mm. i think that the sharing of that practice personally i think is fine you know i have a lot of non-indigenous friends that want to share that and want to know how to do it and weave but the line is drawn when they want to take that and use that commercially or in their own businesses or, or you know start making baskets in that way i think it's really important to share and connect over this kind of thing. But then how you use that, I think it should just be a personal thing. It should stay with that weaving group that you've learnt the technique from and, and respect that it's a cultural thing to do. So, yeah, I suppose I don't see a problem in sharing weaving, but really it's for us to tell people how and what they should be doing with that yeah that, that respect should be listened to i think yeah mm. i was just wondering if there's like enough respect in the art world and the commercial art world mm. that uh, aboriginal art is going to have much more value than some other people who might be having pseudo aboriginal art or even mm. you know replicas of aboriginal art is there enough understanding about the value and the um, consequences of yeah, not respecting the ownership and tradition? Mm. I think within the art sector, Aboriginal art brings in millions and millions of dollars, far more than non-Indigenous art does within the country. And there's a lot of money made off Aboriginal art. And there's not a lot of rich Aboriginal artists mm. <laughs> walking around. So I think... There's different levels here. There's the serious art collector, the art buyer and seller and that kind of market. And then there's, you know, a very tourist-driven, commercialised kind of market. And then there's community artists and, and people doing their thing, I suppose, and selling within that space. I think that in terms of the respect of the works... 
I suppose it depends what angle you're looking from there. Like, I think there's generally quite a strong, particularly in, I suppose speaking from um, major in art institutions, like art galleries or museums in the country, mm. there's a huge amount of respect for Aboriginal art. There's a lot of fantastic projects happening, festivals happening, you know, exhibitions happening across the country. And there is a deep respect in those spaces most of the time. But the commercial side of art and then the cultural side of art are very two different things, you know. Yeah, right, okay. Like there's artists, I guess, in Victoria making art because it's what they have to do. It's maintaining culture, it's sharing story, it's sharing their voice, it's activism, you know, in a lot of ways. And whether they get acquired by the National Gallery of Victoria or the Melbourne Museum, you know, is neither here or there for them. It's about making their art for what they need to do. And there's other community artists that are making art to share in culture or to express identity and express culture. So that's all happening. And I think there's a general interest from the broader public in what's happening there and trying to connect to that space. But then there's also a complete disregard for the significance of culture within this art because you go to the Vic Market and you see boomerangs, you know, from Indonesia that have Aboriginal design and they're just fakes and there's a lot of fakes going around. So there's two sides, I suppose. Yeah. Couldn't blackfellas be making more money from selling artwork? It mm. seems to be a, a demand for it whether it's tourists or mega industry, that um, I could imagine that people coming from overseas would much prefer to like um, buy authentic Aboriginal art. Yeah, for sure, yeah. but how they, would, they don't know. No. And what they're searching for is the stereotype of an Aboriginal artwork, which is dot painting or it's mm. X-ray fish or turtles. And, you know, so they're going into spaces sometimes that are presenting them with the you know, the stereotype of what they assume Aboriginal art to be or that it should be, yeah, they buy it thinking that maybe this is real Aboriginal art, you know, and it's shifting people's ideas of what Aboriginal art is as well. Like we talk about traditional or customary kind of art, but the art that I'm mostly work within is photography and sculpture and video work and all of it, you know, weaving maybe. There's an artist in Gippsland that's just woven a a few years ago wove a vacuum cleaner <laughs> and okay. you know like she's talking about her work and and that object being part of her life but using this traditional method of weaving to tell that story so there's no like right or wrong really I think with Aboriginal art but um, there is definitely a perceived notion of what that should be both in Australia and outside which influences the market yeah yeah that term Aboriginal art how broad does that stretch? Is that art made by Aboriginal people or is there something that has to be identifiably Aboriginal or is it something about the intent that will deem it to be Aboriginal well, art? I think, well, and again, I'm not speaking on behalf of everyone, but for me, Aboriginal art is art made by an Aboriginal person or a Torres Strait Islander person that identifies with their heritage as Aboriginal and makes art and you know their art might not contain any kind of subject matter aboriginal so to speak subject matter it might but it's inherently is because they're making it and some artists also aboriginal artists don't necessarily always like to be um pigeonholed as an aboriginal artist tracy moffat is a good mm. example of that for me i think if it's aboriginal art it could be a dot painting it could be a bark painting you know it could be that kind of more I'm not even going to say that actually because we keep talking about this <laughs> and um, I think sometimes it plays into the perpetuation of this myth of what Aboriginal art is. But Aboriginal art to me can be anything that is made by an Aboriginal person. Okay. That's interesting. I, I guess thinking back to the music that I make, mm -hmm. sometimes I will write a classical piece which yeah. is purely inspired by Mozart. Sometimes I might write a song with a guitar. It's purely inspired by Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah. Then I'll write a piece which I have the intent of it, you know, having some 
Aboriginal reference or such. So I kind of personally feel like sometimes I'm making Aboriginal music mm. or contemporary Aboriginal music, mm. and then sometimes I'm making classical music. Yeah. And I would hesitate to call a string quartet that I write Aboriginal music because I'm just happen to be Aboriginal. Yeah, but that's exactly it. It's, it's individual. I suppose the space that I work within, I work with art, Aboriginal art, and it's Aboriginal because the artist has identified it as such. Yeah. You know, or they want to be in a show, in an Aboriginal art gallery, or they want to be within a, an Aboriginal exhibition at the museum, or it's coming from the artist and it's such a personal thing and it's it doesn't necessarily fit across all artistic platforms either like you know you but, might be a yeah, yeah sorry go on no, no I, I was just <laughs> you want to debate this with you. Uh, yeah no, no this is this is quite interesting um <laughs> i guess with your curator hat on yeah then if there was an, an aboriginal like uh, there's a whole thing of like an aboriginal artist or an artist who's aboriginal yeah. let's say an artist who's aboriginal yeah who paints water lilies Yep. like in the style of Monet yep. and there is nothing to distinguish that piece of art from the French Impressionist era yep. but that person happens to be Aboriginal. Yep. Would that be hard for you to place into an exhibition of Aboriginal art? Yeah because if I, if I was, it depends on how I'm curating that show. If I'm curating a show that is looking at black feminist activism mm. well then that water lily painting is not really going to yeah. fit within the narrative that I'm trying to achieve and the story that I'm trying to achieve in that show yeah. it may fit in another space mm. if that artist wants to be put into an Aboriginal curated exhibition but I think it comes down to in that point how I work as a curator and, and the stories that I try to tell through art or the narrative that I'm trying to, you know, link on the wall through the different works or, or however it's playing out, how that piece fits within that space because there's a lot of art that, you know, Aboriginal art that might not fit in that either. Mm. So, yeah, I that. Then I also find that I guess a lot of Aboriginal art that's exhibited, mm. there is somehow a link to to Aboriginality somehow, whether it's through traditional practices such mm -hmm. as weaving or um, the subject matter. Yeah. Even I find you know, with songs, like with Aboriginal songwriters, there are people who, who have songs that talk about the Aboriginal experience. And then there are other people who happen to be Aboriginal and but they might write about universal themes, which to listen to is not mm. you know, identifiably Aboriginal. Mm. also think in regards to how one markets themselves yeah and like I get what you're saying just because you're black just because you're aboriginal doesn't mean you can only make aboriginal art or can only work within a black space you could be a aboriginal curator that works in french impressionism I'm doing the Mandela exhibition so I'm an Aboriginal curator working on the Nelson Mandela exhibition and it's a long way away from what I do but there are parallels there I suppose in terms of political histories and black liberation and humanitarian work you know all of that but you don't necessarily have to be just boxed within a space because you are an Aboriginal whatever yep. <laughs> or a person you know but the art that I work with and the people, the artists, the, the communities that I work with do identify in that way and do want their art in the museum as Aboriginal art or mm. contemporary works of clubs or shields or maybe it's a lino etching or it could be, you know, anything. Mm. I suppose I'm interested in the notion of authenticity because... I think collecting institutions, particularly museums, have influenced that legacy and the idea around authenticity for a very long time because, you know, the first things that were collected in this country and also outside of this country were our shields and our, our anything that they could take, essentially, really, because we were seen as a dying race. 
and they were also seen as the most authentic thing you could get from this dying race that will be assimilated and will be gone soon. And that was sort of the beginning of the collection of our cultural material, which can also be, you know, depending on whether it's positioned in the museum or, or the art gallery, seen as art or cultural artefact, as they like to mm. call it, but I don't like using that word. But um, that legacy of collecting what they thought was the most authentic. You know, I've seen, I've been, you know, all around the world looking at our cultural material and at Oxford University, the Pitt Rivers Museum, there was this tag that was written by the collector in, you know, the mid-19th century. And it had said, a good specimen, it was a tag on a shield, a good specimen, but it's been impaired by the white man's tool. So the notion of making something without glass or steel or, you know, in a traditional way, Mm. that was the most prized, authentic kind of thing you could get. You fast forward that and you've got um, art and and art was there before Papania Chula, before that movement, before that dot movement. There was stuff happening, you know, but you've got this big movement of dot works that come into the space and people suddenly go, oh, wow, look at this Aboriginal art. Look how so close to, like, their dreamtime stories and it's something we haven't seen before and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, there's still this kind of romanticised, mythologised kind of space around a lot of this work as well. Whereas the people making it, it had incredible, you know, deep, deep meaning and same with, like, the Barks paintings up in northeast Arnhem Land and, you know, they were used in like political activism and and petitions and getting land rights and sea rights and all of this stuff. Like art is not just an aesthetic for Aboriginal people. It's a a method of activism and it's an archive, you know, as well. We've got Barack paintings from Victoria done, or illustrations, I should say, in like the 1800s. And he, he recorded ceremonies of the Wurundjeri. This was an act of activism. I see it as that because he was not allowed to practice these ceremonies himself because they wouldn't allow him, the white people, but he drew them. They even, but the white people hung it on their, their walls. You know, mm. like, it was the ultimate act of activism because he was keeping that ceremony alive and keeping those cultural practices alive. Mm. And it's an archive in itself as well. So, like, we have all these sort of practices and then the collecting institutions, I suppose, like in the 70s and 80s down here or even earlier, like, they were collecting started to collect Aboriginal art but it was the more traditional you know so to speak looking art and in Victoria particularly like it's been only in the last probably since the 80s that art down here has been collected by major institutions or from here has been collected by major institutions because it wasn't seen as authentic enough and that plays into identity and it plays into self-worth and you know all of that for communities as well and I know like Uncle Lynn Onis who's a prolific Yorta Yorta artist. He fought for many years to be taken seriously as an artist and also as an Aboriginal artist producing work. Um, and now, you know, he's one of the most famous Victorian Aboriginal artists that has been. So, yeah, I, I often think about authenticity and, and how what's led to the stage we're at now, where I think a lot of those barriers have been broken down in terms of people thinking what's real black art and what's not but that's in educated circles that's in circles that are engaged in art and culture and might go to the museum or might go to the gallery or might watch NITV you know there's still a huge amount of people that assume Aboriginal art is just dot painting and boomerangs and Hmm. you know so yeah I suppose there's still a bit of work to do there I'm just wondering if how you say the practices cultural and also uh, through protest movements Mm. does the commercialization of artwork influence the art and then in turn influence the culture Richard Bell wrote his theorem a few years back he titled one of the chapters um, Aboriginal art it's a white thing and it was commenting on the industry and why are we making art and who for and what are we getting in return and what are we selling in that space and how do we manage our own cultural protocols and activisms and voices without being exploited. So 
don't know. What was your question? Yeah. Oh, well, just how how it influences the art that is created. Uh, um, the example I can think of is to go back to the Central Desert where it is coming from the sand paintings and the body yeah. paintings and such. But then, you know, once you start having it placed on, you know, on boards okay. or on canvases, it takes a, a different shape and then it has a different purpose. Now, I, I could imagine that once you're starting to put stuff on canvas, then you start thinking, you know, dollar signs, and then it becomes more about the aesthetic than the message. Yeah, uh, sometimes maybe I don't know. Like I don't, I don't know about that old mob in Papania, but certainly after the first kind of wave of you know of them doing that, it started to become, I think, more commercial. Not so much on their behalf. I don't know. You know, like also, I mean, Aboriginal art. Well, making art for Aboriginal people is an income, is, you know, a job. And that's okay because there's a lot of white people doing it as well. Whether it changes the cultural integrity or, or whether it influences that, I'm not entirely sure. I think a lot of the artists that I work with that are making really good work that are successful both in Australia but globally come from a very strong place of self identity and activisms and looking at the environment and really critically analyzing colonization and, and where we're at now and what's happened in that time and critically looking at the government and real things that are affecting us still as a people and that's powerful that's where we have a platform and that's a voice then there are other spaces where maybe people are making more commercial art to suit a certain buyer or they're making art it might be a Victorian Aboriginal person doing dot paintings because it's the only way they know how to connect to a culture or the culture that they come from you know they might not have learnt that in Victoria we didn't do dots we did linear markings and diamonds and cross hatching and you know all of these different things so it's also that level of, of education and knowing about that hmm. um, yeah, so I suppose it just depends on, yeah, how much you've been taught and had access to and yep. and what you're trying to achieve out of your work as well. Because some artists don't want to be political, mm. but some, that's all that they're about inherently. Yep. Like, Yeah, it's interesting you should mention down here, it's, uh, you know, not so much about the dots. It's, mm. What were you saying? Like, so it's cross-hatching and what, what other stuff? Yeah, so pre-contact... And that's one thing I want to say too, like when we talk about contemporary and traditional, and I heard a New Zealand curator, Māori woman, talking about this notion as well last year at a festival, um, sorry, at a uh, conference. She said, you know, it implies when you're talking about traditional or customary and contemporary, it implies a break in culture and it implies a break in knowledge. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it kind of gave me this whole new perspective of thinking about that because it does, it divides the two. when I think it's very fluid between more traditional or or pre-contact or customary kind of practice and and contemporary. It's kind of, it's like our being. There's no beginning or end. It's just a continuous linear marking of time for Aboriginal people or if that's what you, you know, believe. That's what I do in terms of our culture and and how long we've been here. But I think with, when we're talking about traditional art yeah so with the cross hatching and oh, I, yeah. I guess it, yeah, yeah so well down here we didn't do like the dot painting like you see we didn't do dots like we may have painted sort of dots so to speak on on the body with ochre and dance like fingertip prints or whatever but mm-hmm. really uh, iconography in our patterns were like cross hatching like thick cross hatching though not like the rock of the northern yeah yeah um, okay and diamonds and linear markings and these were engraved in our shields and our cultural materials Mm. they were painted on the body for ceremony they would have been you know marked on the ground for ceremony and for teaching as well Mm. and they were engraved on our possum skin cloaks so this is something that has been a part of our cultural practice for many many years and the dots came in you know much later in the piece yeah. 
it's interesting how you like talk about this consistent flow of culture and not having that break between the traditional and contemporary. But surely like the mission days and the southeastern Australian Aboriginal experience was not allowed to practice their culture and speak their language and yeah. such. Surely that must account for somewhat of that break of tradition and then post that the, the attempt to revitalise yeah. you know, culture. Oh, there's no denying that like there was a displacement of knowledge and the ability to practice culture but we still have language in Victoria and we still have cultural practices. They have continued even though we had the oppression on missions and that early colonial history so yes there has been you know and in some cases some of our cultural practices have been dormant i never refer to them as lost because nothing is lost yeah it's just waiting and that mission time and with that early colonial period there was terrible things that happened to our people and yeah, we couldn't a lot of the time speak language or do any of our cultural practice because we'll get flogged for it or even worse, you know. But there were still elders and there were still people that continued that knowledge and maintained that in their own ways. And it's still here today. And it's also in the archives. It's still there, you know, like the people wrote things down. And like a good example was just was I was talking about, like William Barak. Hmm. You can visually see the ceremonies that were happening so, yeah, I don't believe there has been a break in culture. It's just been displaced a little bit and mm. some of it's become a bit dormant. It's been asleep for a little while, you know, but it's, that knowledge is still out there. Yeah. I still feel like that there's a quite a new context these days. Um, particularly, it was quite interesting working on Tandarum yeah. as to... Um, the songs and the, the learning of songs because people are so busy with their day-to-day having to write music that's quite easy to learn in a short amount of time yeah you know, as opposed to some of the music that I've been listening to close to the traditional you know, mobs who have been you know singing their songs for centuries yeah um, it, it is quite complicated and it needs people to like sing it over and over again as kids yeah. are growing up you know as opposed to all getting together once every yeah unfortunately uh you know english is our first language mm. like there's not many people that i know of in victoria that are fluent in their their language you know there's a few that have done a lot of work on it and back all and different you know organizations are reviving language but that was one thing that was taken away from us for a little while or you know again it's it's there because there are people that know language maybe not you know fluently but i mean there's a yorta yorta dictionary there's and there's a constant work being done on that space as well with yorta yorta and the same with lots of mobs but i think the thing with tandarum and a lot of the work that we're all doing as well is that we're creating new culture we're creating the culture for our children and and you know other generations and it's exactly what's been happening for thousands of years and we're creating new ceremonies and tandarum it's leaning on a lot of the language that's still around and the ceremonial um, practices that we know that happened you know and we know that through the archives and through oral histories of the community and through different diaries of you know white explorers or or however we're collating all of this information but then we're again like evolving it a little bit into something new um that's still very much culture and as it's as real as it was 250 years ago it's just different now that's how i see it yeah yeah i gotta ask what you've feelings are or even the art world's feelings are towards um mob down here using dots for for painting so i I guess it seems like it's maybe it's borrowing a little bit from you know other parts of the country in that attempt to revitalize culture down here and be able to you know for people to have some kind of aboriginal arts practice 
I guess you see that even with Victorian traditional dancers, but they're using the yadaki. Yeah, yeah. So what's the feeling in the world and I guess your own personal art world and your own personal feelings towards um, that? Well, I can just talk from my personal space, I suppose, not really like the art world, but um, I don't like to criticise people that are, are doing dot painting that are Victorian or not from the area that really comes from because I think a lot of the time it's a way of um, connecting to culture connecting to an Aboriginal identity but I strongly encourage people to look at the objects that their ancestors made and the museum and the you know collections are a really good resource for that because these objects that we have were made by the old people you know some of them are from the early 1800s and that's where you can see the lines and the markings and maps of country and everything that was being done in that space and so I encourage artists to if they can connect in with that research that or come into the museum or talk to people about that it also depends on what kind of art you want to make I think if you want to tell your story you could tell that in any way it doesn't have to be through dot painting. It could be through photography or other forms of making art. So I think my personal opinion is I don't, while not criticising artists that are doing it, I have a personal preference for art that's not Victorian artists that aren't doing dots mm. and that are actually looking into their, their cultural heritage if they choose to, if they're wanting to, you know, go down that way with the aesthetic of their art and making of art but then there's artists you know which like young Koori artists that are, are making digital stories and, and taking photos and doing amazing things with new technologies or painting or you know like on bloody like steel and like using doing really interesting stuff so yeah I think I'm interested in that space and how people are exploring their identities, yeah, mm. through that. And then there are non-Aboriginal people who are making art that obviously must have some influence from you know traditional forms like mm. the you know the, the dots and the and the cross hatchings. And where is the line there drawn as far as there are other art forms which around the world which use dot ideas yeah where is it that says that or where is it that should say that has gone too far into the world of of aboriginal art um, and is uh, appropriating culture yeah i mean aboriginal people don't own circles and dots like obviously but there has been i've seen a lot of appropriation by very significant artists white artists and they've been called out on it as well and the common response to that is, I was influenced and inspired and I'm honouring Aboriginal art. And I think that just kind of means that they don't have any of their own good ideas, to be honest. And that if an Aboriginal person or people or community group are saying to you, you are appropriating our work or this artist's work, stop doing this and people continue to do it. Well, that's just sheer arrogance and disrespect hmm. so if people are calling you out on it or if someone asks the question and the artist doesn't respond or can't respond or says well I'm inspired by it or I'm paying homage to it it's not good enough I get really frustrated with appropriation and it's happening a lot like outside of Australia as well with um, obviously Native American uh, costume and their own artwork being you know showing up at the most common one is showing up at festivals of people wearing headdresses I think most people know now that it's you don't do it but it's like spot the idiot at a festival like when you see someone walking towards you with a headpiece on now but like there's a space of sharing in culture and respecting culture and then using it you know mm and taking it for your own, you know, advantage. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm wondering, like, because I, when I was last in Thailand, you bought some 
stuff from Hill Tribe Mop, so yeah. like Hill Tribe patterns and Hill Tribe hats, yeah. which are quite colourful. And and then you do notice that at festivals as well. Is that in the same ballpark or is it something that if you purchase it from people of that ethnicity, then you are allowed to wear it as opposed to... I think if the people are selling it to you... Mm they're making a product and they're selling it to you and you're buying it off the artist and that yeah. money's going to the artist and yeah, yeah like i think it's when a non-indigenous fashion designer artist whatever designer for tote bags like takes a um artist work or a photo of rock art and then splashes that on a t-shirt or cuts it up and puts it onto shoes and it's walking down like Paris runways or that's appropriation Mm. that's that's really messed up like you're taking someone's culture and you're using it to your advantage and you're not asking permission you have no understanding of what it might mean that's when it's really wrong or when you're knowingly just copying something and then incorporating it into your own work that's appropriation I think if Aboriginal people, for instance, are weaving baskets or me, weaving earrings. I feel really proud that people want to wear my earrings and Mm. I don't see that as appropriation. I think it's when you use it. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm just trying to navigate the world musically. Yeah, it can be, uh, you know, quite hard to get in touch with mob sometimes getting permissions and knowing whether to draw the line on using stuff which might be uh, potentially uh, offensive to other people um, is there a way at least in the art world that that artists can make sure that they're abiding by protocols and such i don't know i suppose if you like depends what you're making depends what you're saying i suppose like mm. i can't really speak from like a perspective outside of victoria really um. Say if an artist, a visual artist, was to create Aboriginal art and then and then go into the museum and you know look at uh, Aboriginal art from Victoria, yeah, would would then they have to go and get permissions before they start using cross hatchings or no, um, no, no, no. It depends on what they're seeing, but no, like we. If you identify as a Victorian Aboriginal person and you might be Yorta Yorta or Wurundjeri or Bunwurrung or Gwinchima, you know, whoever you are, if you see patterns from... Sadly, most of the material in museums are maker unknown, <laughs> like, or unrecorded. They were known people. They just never recorded them. So there isn't necessarily a person to go to or a family member or someone, you, you know, directly to go to about that. But I think, like generally with that kind of iconography down here if you identify as a victorian aboriginal person you have that lineage here and are connecting into that like you have the right to use that you have the right to learn your language and to use your language as long as it's done correctly i suppose language is a whole different thing but um i think when it comes to like more you know if, if there's work that you know the maker and the artist that's when you would seek permission if you wanted to use, you know, some of that or it's just case by case, I suppose. But Mm. generally, if you want to connect to your culture, like, you can. Like, there's no one, yeah, Yeah. just stop you in that. And there's certainly, like, you know, if you want to do it the right way, you speak to elders, you speak to your community, people in your family or other artists, you know, depending if you don't have your family close by or whatever, like mm. everyone has different situations. Yeah. Yeah. I guess there seems to be a lot of non-Aboriginal people wanting to connect with mm. Indigenous cultures of all different sorts. So what's your frame of reference for them to, uh, where's the line drawn as far as like them wanting to engage and, and yeah. participate, but yeah. not yeah, There's so far. much out there for people to connect to you know like I think that that line of appreciation versus appropriation or connection versus appropriation you know like first people's exhibition at Melbourne Museum you know 
that gives you a comprehensive look at Aboriginal Victoria that's inviting and we want people to come in and share our culture and learn and walk out celebrating the First Peoples of Victoria. But there's exhibitions all the time happening at the NGV, there's arts festivals across Australia, Aboriginal arts festivals across Australia, there's local things happening all the time, there's keeping places that you can visit, like there's lots of ways you can engage in that space and listen and learn and be respectful without having to take on the culture. Mm. I think that's like the thing, like you don't have to take something to understand it. You don't have to use it or incorporate it into your way of being to understand it or to respect it. You know, you can sit, listen and, and learn and form friendships and relationships. Mm. I think that's the way to properly do it. Yep. Yeah. And just before we go get a feed, <laughs> is there anything that you feel that people should know about Aboriginal art or Aboriginal cultural practice, at least in, in Victoria, which is you know not talked about enough. <laughs> Could be here another two hours. Um, I think that the one thing you know that people in Victoria need to know about Victorian Aboriginal culture is that it's still very much alive. You could be sitting next to an Aboriginal person on the tram and you might not know it. You know, our cultural practices are maintained and are very strong. Our links to country, even if you live off country, you know, is still there. I suppose, yeah, that we're strong, proud people. That's what people should know. And there's so many opportunities to engage in that. And we want you to, you know. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me on. No worries. Hopefully it's informative to, to people and uh, they you might me rant it. for an hour. Yeah, I, I found it <laughs> enjoyable to, yeah, to hear what you had to say. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, thanks. I love talking. <laughs> Good one. And then uh, if people want to explore your work, I guess your curatorial work or yeah. your work at the museum, how can people know what, where to find you or do, do you tweet much or...? <laughs> Uh, Instagram. Oh, yeah. That's not like a work thing. That's more of a private thing. But I do work stuff on there. But um, well, you know, you can come visit First Peoples at Melbourne Museum. I worked on that along with many other amazing people um, and community. And um, I don't know, Google me. Yeah. <laughs> stuff will come up. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, but I write every now and then, you know, for different arts magazines and and things and catalogues and stuff so yeah out and about <laughs> nice one kimberly moulton thanks what james henry cool <laughs>